If you have an interest in horses and love learning more about horses, the horse industry, teaching, or even managing your own horse business, then you're in the right place. We would love you to join us on our mission, which is to improve the lives of horses around the world through the education of riders, handlers, and trainers. So get comfortable, listen in, and enjoy. Today's chat's been brought to you by International Horse College. International Horse College's motto is people safety and horse welfare, and you'll find this message throughout our chats. Registered Training Organisation number 31352. Today I'd like to introduce Megan George. Megan's a dressage specialist coach and coach educator, and she also teaches jumping and eventing. How are you today, Megan? I'm very well, thank you. Fantastic. Megan, we normally start off with a favourite quote. So have you got a favourite quote that you'd like to use and like to tell us about today? Yes, I have. It's um, rather old. It's by Xenophon Mm -hmm. and it's anything forced is not beautiful. And I think that sums up a lot of things that are wrong with riding today. We see a lot of egos, a lot of anger and a lot of impatience. And it shows in that that the horse no longer is beautiful. Yes, and it's wonderful to think that something that was written centuries ago is still in force today, you know, with all the modern uses of technology and how quickly the world is changing, the horse is still the same. We still need to train the same way that Xenophon trained. Absolutely. And you only need to go back to the masters to see that the methods that worked then still work today. Yes. Yeah. Megan, how did you start with horses? Did you come from a horsey family? Did you, you know, start at the local riding school? Do you want to tell us about that story? <laughs> well, no, my parents were not horsey at all. And the first time I ever saw a horse, I was only about three. We were down at my mother's relative's farm at Leeson. And the stockman used to put me on front of his saddle and go down and collect the mail each day. And I was hooked from then. I just thought this Tammy, this beautiful stock horse, was the most glorious creature on the planet and it was only two years later when I was looking through mum's photo album I realised that Tammy was rather a unique, mangy old <laughs> stock horse but <laughs> to a three-year-old's eyes she was glamorous mm. and then I um, was not allowed to, to, we had no way of riding so I did Highland Dancing which was my family's sort of tradition and then when I was at 13, I said, no, no, I really do need to ride. And I saved up my pocket money and my parents relented and we went to Mr. Proudford's Riding Academy. And I was so excited. I had six lessons saved up. And uh, we were watching with my mother, who was very frightened of horses. And we were watching a lesson and a little kid was bolted with and came screaming towards us and fell at our feet in a heap. And um, Mr. Proudfoot picked her up and sent her into Mrs. Proudfoot with the message, tell Mrs. Proudfoot you fell off and she'll give you a cup of tea and an Aspro. <laughs> and he looked at me and said, so do you still want to ride? And my mother was just ashen-faced and I said, yes. <laughs> so that was it. I started with Mr. Proudfoot. <laughs> That's good. That's good. All right. And now from there, you've gone on from, you know, starting with Mr. Proudfoot. You've gone on and competed and done more and had a career with horses. What do you think is some of the core skills? You know, look, because you would get people asking you about a career with horses. What sort of core skills do you think they need to start with a career with horses? 
Well, they definitely need to have a love of the animal. Otherwise, it's a very difficult job to continue in. I think they need to be disciplined, to have respect both for the animal and for their employer and um, clients. They have to be diligent and hardworking and they really have to be willing to listen and learn. Uh, a lot of kids, I used to teach TAFE a bit and I saw kids coming in and they thought they knew everything and they were doomed to fail because there's no way you can know everything. In fact, you, I'm still learning. Everybody who's serious about horses realise they don't know everything. They have to keep learning. I think there's a, a bit of a, a mistake. Sometimes people become qualified as an instructor and they think that they know everything as well. And really, at that first level, to become qualified as an instructor, that's a really basic level. You should go on, keep learning, keep your mind open, and that's just the first step in a professional career. It's not the be-all and end-all. Absolutely. I'm a coach educator with Equestrian Australia and and we do do a lot of work, especially with the beginning level, that first level, the introductory coach. And um, I always say to them, look, this is just the beginning. You know, you're learning now how to anticipate problems, look to see if that mare is going to twitch her tail and kick the pony behind her. Be aware of all of those things. But it is just the beginning. And you'll see the people that have been successful, and not only competitors but coaches, they're the ones that keep learning, that keep striving to learn. Mm, mm. Yes, I agree. Tell me about people who've influenced you, you know, because you would have started off, well, you started off, you know, on a next stock horse and you've gone on, but you've kept progressing and you've kept progressing and you've kept learning and you must have been helped and inspired by some people. So who were they? Many, many people. Every time you hop on a horse, you learn. Every horse teaches you. And the people that have been instrumental in helping me. Like I said, we were not in a position for me to own a horse. I was very lucky that the boss of my father had a pony for his child and this pony was very naughty and the boy didn't want to ride him. So I was given this pony and he was a cracker. He was an Arab Welsh mountain pony cross that was rather nippy and naughty, but I loved him and if it hadn't been for Mr. and Mrs. Gray giving me that pony, and I rode him from 13 to 18, mm. I just couldn't have gone to pony club. I couldn't have gone to competition. So they were the first people that really, I guess, were my benefactors. And then after that, I became a school teacher, mainly because I wanted good pay, <laughs> not that it is now, good holidays so that I could continue riding. And I just, I've just been very lucky in that people have, when I've not been in a position to own a horse, I've been given horses. I travelled overseas. I rode in Spain. I lived in Madrid for two years. I lived in Switzerland for a few years and, again, was given horses. And people there were helpful and instrumental in teaching me different... Well, I was the first time I rode a warm blood or an Andalusian. I didn't know how to make them go. <laughs> so that was interesting. But then the people that really, really have been influential when I was just doing straight show jumping. George Sanner was fantastic, a friend and an amazing coach. He taught me oh, so much about jumping. Judy Fasher, I met because I was teaching her boys at school and she said, why don't you come eventing? I said, yeah, okay, we'll give that a go. And I learned so much with her. She's another inspirational coach and writer. And then the main influence has been Miguel Tavera. He's a Portuguese 
master. I've been with him for 15, 16 years and he has been by far the most influential person in my riding career. He's not well now, he's quite ill and I still, when I go and visit him in hospital, he sits down and says, well, where's the video of your last (laughs) ride? Any problems with your students? Mm -hmm. You know, what are you doing? How's this going? Give me a few more exercises for in hand work. Mm-hmm. It never stops. And so I think Miguel would have to be the biggest influence. Okay, good, good. Now, every horse teaches you something. You said that earlier. What was your, your first pony's name, the nippy one that you said that you just loved that you had from 13 to 18? <laughs> yep. What was his name? His name was Blue Boy, <laughs> and he was a lovely dapple grey, and he, he, like I said, he used to bite me all the time. Mm-hmm. And... <laughs> When I went to Pony Club, I progressed and we, we went to competitions and they had the John Charlton Horsemanship Awards and I was lucky enough to represent the club at that. And in one of those, one of the things you had to do was take off battle and round bareback through bending poles and over a little jump. And the judge came up to me at the end of the day and said, is that Blue Boy? And I said, oh, yes, it is, because he had a very large scar on his side quite recognisable. And she said, I sold him as a six-year-old stallion to a stud in Wagga. Anyway, when we did the the dates, he'd been, I don't know what had happened, but I got him about six months after he'd been obviously gelded. Mm, So no wonder he was such a naughty, (laughs) ideal first pony, probably not. But, you know, I I just adored him. Mm. He was wonderful. What's been your proudest moment with horses? I think my proudest moment was um, when I was awarded New South Wales Community Coach of the Year for last year. I was quite overcome. I didn't realise how emotional I was. (laughs) But it was because it's from your students. You know, you're nominated by your students. And I was told that it was an overwhelming, unanimous verdict that I got it. So that was... That was probably my proudest moment with horse, with career. Mm-hmm. But with horses, it can be every day. Or, for example, I have a very spooky horse at the moment and I can now ride him to the top of my laneway, which is you can see for miles. Mm-hmm. And the first time I took him up there three years ago, he was so bad I had to get off him and lead him back. He was just <laughs> terrified of yep. the vast distance. And now, through all the training I've been doing with him, I can go up there He's still terrified, like he's still mm-hmm. looking for the monsters, but he's obedient. And that's the thing. You don't want to make them slaves. You don't want to crush their personality. But they, through training, they become obedient. And that's what I'm very proud. It sounds like he's got the trust and the confidence in you now as well. Not, not just the obedience, exactly. but trust and confidence. Yep. All right. Now, thinking about, and this is putting on your coach's cap, and thinking about all the students that nominated you for the New South Wales Community Coach of the Year, what sort of problems do they have? What sort of things are you teaching them? What's a common problem or a common thing that you see? And also, we don't want just want to know what the problem is. We want to know how to fix it as well. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I think it's funny. I, I suppose with the teenage girls that are competing – the most common problem is their nerves and their expectations. So I do a lot of work beforehand with not only the girls, 
but also the parents because a lot of the time the parents are non-horsey and their expectations can be very unrealistic and unachievable and that's setting everybody up for failure. So I do a lot of work with them off the horse talking about what our goals are and um, what their goals are and what my goals are for them and it just takes the edge off. For example, I had a little girl compete at the Winter Festival which was funnily enough held in November because it had been postponed. But anyway, it was a huge competition down at Clarendon in Sydney run by the Dressage New South Wales. And the mother had entered the child in this. This is her first ever dressage competition. And I said, well, you should probably talk to me first before you entered her because this is one of the toughest competitions Mm. in Australia. But anyway, so... We sat down and we, because this child had been to Pony Club and had had success at Pony Club, and I said, it's a different ball game down there. So because I could talk to them and make them understand that she'll be competing against the top kids in the state, they then relaxed and understood what was expected of them. Mm -hmm. And she came home with a ribbon and she was just ecstatic. So, you know, I think that's the hardest problem with those well the most common problem is competition nerves mm-hmm. but from a riding point of view in dressage I come across it all the time it's riding from the inside leg to the outside rein you know they they all try and steer the horse and pull them onto the circle with the outside rein when in fact they should be bending and flexing the horse to the inside with the inside hand give it then use your inside leg so that the outside rein then becomes into practice, if you like. Nuno Oliveira said it beautifully. He said the outside rein should envelop the horse. And so many times you see people either using the outside rein to steer the horse out to the circle, which means they counter-bend and counter-flex, mm-hmm. or they block. They jam their hand down and they've heard everyone say you ride from the inside leg to the outside rein, but they don't understand how the rein should work, that it should be enveloping the horse, not not hanging on or pulling backwards and blocking. Yes, yes. I think sometimes that, um, you know, a little bit of knowledge can be dangerous, can't it? (laughs) Yes, definitely. (laughs) Oh, just let me interrupt you for a moment, just to let people know about the horse industry qualifications at Online Horse College. Have a look at the flexible options with online theory. The practical components can be completed by video or with a qualified expert in your area. That website again is onlinehorsecollege.com. Okay, thanks. Just going back to the, um, you know, talking to the parents and the consulting, the talking and everything that you did with the parents, it it's showing that coaching is not necessarily, and especially as you get to a higher level, it's not necessarily the technical skills. It's all the other things that you need, all the other skills that you need that complement the technical skills. Absolutely. Now, now that, that's very true. And um, that's why I think coaches who have competed make the best coaches mm-hmm. because, you know, it's all well and good to have a lot of theory and, and understanding. But if you can't actually impart that knowledge in a meaningful way and, and have some sports psychology behind you, although I'm a little bit scared to say that because of the sports psychs don't actually understand our sport. And uh, I remember going to one very oh, years ago and 
and they were saying, you know, you've got to jazz yourself up and pump yourself up and, you know, as if I'm going to run the 100 metres. And I said, well, if you do that and then I'll hop on the horse, the horse is going to be jumping out of its skin. That's yeah. not appropriate for our sport. I go to competitions where I can with mm-hmm. my students because especially when they're teenage girls because I often send the parent away to get me a cup of tea <laughs> and then I can talk to them and they have absolute faith in me so they are obedient I guess a bit like mm. the horses they trust mm. you yeah. and so they listen to you and therefore they can get the best performance but it is a skill and I don't think our coaching courses probably emphasize that enough because if you look at the way horses are going in our age it's a sport it's a competition most people want to go and compete doesn't matter what level you're talking about. They all want to go out and show us their horse, which is good, and get some good positive feedback. And that can be a ribbon or it can be a personal achievement. In the old days, it wasn't always like that. So I think our coaching courses need to emphasise the competition aspect a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Just to do with the teenage girls, do you find that there's a bit of peer pressure between the girls? Oh, yeah, totally, totally, yeah. Yeah. And I have a very strict code of conduct with the girls. They're not allowed to get on Facebook and (laughs) and bag out each other or, you know, there's none of that allowed. And, in fact, I have asked some girls not to be involved in my pony camps and things that I run in the holidays because Mm -hmm. they're a divisive influence and it promotes all the wrong things in my opinion they should be there for the love of the horse not for their own ego and sometimes the kids come around and sometimes I lose students and I don't mind Mm -hmm. it's my philosophy and the parents are very appreciative of it sometimes I have to counsel the parents too (laughs) yes yep yep all right now putting on your coach educator cap what do you think is the main problem with beginner coaches, coaches who are just starting. They just want to start teaching and instructing and they've come to you to learn. They might have ridden and competed but never actually been in the position where they've got to observe other riders, teach other riders. What are some of the main problems that you see? It's interesting. If the candidates have had lessons with good people, there's usually no problem. Mm -hmm. But if they are a bit self-taught and, you know, you have to address the knowledge issue first of all, but they often don't understand how to impart the knowledge in a meaningful way and you have to be adaptable. You know, one method might work with one type of personality and not with another. So you have to be adaptable so that you can get your message across. Mainly the ones who have had lessons they don't have a problem, but the self-taught ones are difficult. Judy Fasher and I put through a lot of eventing riders that were competing at a very high level, and they were fantastic. They got it straight away because they had all been exposed to good coaching. And it was funny because it was, that was in the old days when they had a final exam, and we'd say to them, look, we think you're ready to go to the exam. And they said, no, 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 we need to do more trained coach days because mm-hmm. we're not ready. Whereas the ones who don't know a lot, often think they know a lot and are a bit reluctant to do the extra training. And that's why we all need to learn and we need to go to good coaches. Yep, yep. Okay, Megan, have you got a book that you'd recommend that can complement the coaching and the writing? Yes, well, I'm an avid reader and being under Miguel Tavra's tutelage, he's very academic. He has 
a vast array of books. And so he would often tell me to go and buy a book and then he'd give me chapters to read and then I'd be questioned <laughs> the next time I went. The book that I that resonates the most with me is called Horsemanship by Valdemar Sunig. And it was written in the 1940s and it's a very comprehensive book on training, not only the horse but the rider as well. So from a coaching point of view, it's it's very good. And the interesting thing about it is I always laugh when I read articles in magazines about the latest method or, you know, I've reinvented the wheel sort of thing. Mm, mm. And at the moment, biomechanics is huge, and which is great. We, we all need to learn how the horse can move and mm. what it's capable of and what it's not. But Valdemar Sunik was writing this in the 1940s. Yes. And he refers to Dalaguniere and Carpentry. Uh, so... None of it's new. Mm. It's all there. We just forgot it. Some people didn't forget, like the old masters like Miguel. He Mm. is one of the dying breed, really. And what's good about today is that we have access to such better teaching aids. Like Mm -hmm. you can get on YouTube and see how horses work and, you know, with all the, the newfangled 3D technology. So that's brilliant. But the message is the same. It's just that people haven't been listening. Yes, and, you know, you started off with a quote from Xenophon, you know, so Xenophon yeah. must have known something, you know. <laughs> That's right. Mm. <laughs> yes, I'm not sure about some of these other philosophical points, but, but on, on the horse <laughs> he was pretty spot on. <laughs> okay. All right. Now, Megan, what are you looking forward to? What do you, what's your future hold? Well, I still compete. I don't mm-hmm. compete nearly as much. I compete for fun and as a test For me, for my training, I have a very nice horse at the moment that I bought as a just rising four-year-old, Bluefield Fiederglantz, which is a bit of a mouthful. His name's Piccolo, (laughs) really. And he's now doing Priest and George, and next weekend he's going to do an inter-one. Probably not not quite ready for the inter-one, but we'll give it a go. Uh, I'm not trying to get on any squad or anything. I just do it for fun and, and like I said, to test myself. And... What I do is always get someone to video it because I think often I need to see what I'm feeling because sometimes what you feel is not good. You think that's great and you look at it and go, "Mm, that wasn't so good after all. So Mm -hmm. I like to do that. And I'm also looking at a pony this weekend because pony dressage is getting very big and I'm quite a small person. So I thought, "Mm, I might give that a go. So Looking at the quality of the ponies around at the moment, I thought I might do a bit of pony dressage as well. Okay, good. Hmm. <laughs> All right. Now, what I'd like you to do now is just to, before we finish, to sum up your philosophy into a lesson today. And this is a lesson for people to take away with them and learn from the interview. Oh, I guess it would be to always strive to learn. We never stop learning. You know, just keep going to clinics sometimes it's, you go to a clinic and you say well that's definitely not the way I want to ride and that's that's good because then you clarifying your own beliefs and way of riding so strive to learn go to good people that you trust avoid cruel methods you know people should educate themselves to know what's right and wrong too we've seen dressage take a bit of a bad turn in the last 10 years with some pretty cruel training methods being used. And I think if you always strive to learn, you can avoid those traps. 
and stay true to your philosophy. I will bang on a bit here about judging. I do think judges shape our dressage way of going. Yes. And I think they have to be really held responsible for this often forced, fantastical way they want horses to move. I remember Miguel showing me a video of Totalus when he first hit the scene. And he said, what do you think of that? And I was gobsmacked. I said, I don't know. I've never seen a horse move like that. And he said, what do you think of his collected trot? And I said, "Hmm, I've never seen a horse move like that. And he said, if that's what the judges want, they have to change the rule book. Mm-hmm. And I looked at him and he said, what does the rule book say about the parallel lines of the hind leg and the foreleg? And he's right, you know. Yeah. And so, but that became the norm. People wanted to ride horse like that. And I even jokingly said, well, I better get myself a hackney. Yep. And that we've seen over the last 10 years. It's now changing. It's now going back with Vallegro and Charlotte Dujardin that it's now starting to go back to that more classically correct form of riding. Mm-hmm. So let's hope the judges catch up with that because as a coach, you have to uphold the officials and the judges' decisions. But sometimes it is a bit tricky for me to do that when you can see some discrepancies there that shouldn't be there. Yes, I think the judges certainly have that responsibility for the sport. They're the ones that are judging and people you know, for various reasons, want to compete. Some people want to go out because they are competitive and they want to win. And this is their job to go out to win because that's how they get paid by the owners, by the sponsors. But other people want to go out and just test and make sure that it's okay. And there's lots of reasons, but the judges need to reward what's correct. You're right. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I've even had a judge say to me once, look, Megan, your horse is lovely. He's correct. but He's just not special enough. Mm. <laughs> mm. I didn't know special was on the German training scale. or. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so that sort of summed it up for me. I thought, oh gosh, that's, if that's what they want, then I'm not going to do that. And that's because I have a wonderful coach and mentor that's saying, no, stick to the principle, stick to what's correct. Yep. And that's all you can do, really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How can people contact you? Well, I have my phone number yep. and also um, I have well, I have two Facebook pages. One mm-hmm. is just for cats doing silly things and the other is Megan Yerg Equestrian and I put some interesting articles up there and people can post things on that if they like to and or they can PM me on that as well. Okay. And those contact details are available on horsechats.com slash Megan Yerg. All right, Megan, it's been very good talking to you today. Very pleasing and hopefully we'll catch up again sometime. Oh, thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Megan. Bye. Bye. If you've enjoyed this chat, then please comment, rate and subscribe. If you'd like any changes or recommendations for guests, then please contact us through horsechats.com. And while you're online, have a look at the government accredited courses at internationalhorsecollege.com. Registered Training Organisation 31352. Remember that our comments and instructions are general in nature and do not take into consideration your individual horses or your individual ability and circumstances. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please leave your comment below 